Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Well, have you ever wondered how to finish well? Have you ever wondered how to deal with incredible loss? Have you ever wondered how to reinvent yourself? These are all issues we talk about today with legendary pastor and author, Dr. Leroy Lawson. Welcome to Leading Simple. My name is Rusty George, where we just try to make real life simple. And today we are joined by legendary pastor, Dr. Leroy Lawson, who pastored a church in the Arizona area for 20 years, did an incredible job taking it to a mega church. And in pastor circles, he is revered as just one of the godfathers, so to speak. He is a man of integrity and a man who endured very difficult loss and the loss of a child and also went through just the pain of life itself. And he shares some valuable insight and some funny stories along the way. Hey, if you haven't yet, would you take a moment and rate and review our podcast? It would mean so much to me. So easy to do, especially on your iPhone. You can just click the five stars to rate. That would be great. I want to read a a comment from somebody here uh, from Sandy. She says, the podcast talks about real life issues we deal with as people, parents, partners, co-workers, humans. While we all have issues and lives to keep private, we're all at root the same. Uh, This podcast will bring some light into your life, make you feel like you are not alone because you're not. It has changed my life, and that is no exaggeration. Sandy, thank you so much for that review. And I would ask that if you would leave a review as well, and I'll read it on the air. Uh, As always, we are sponsored by Compassion International, and we're on a quest to sponsor a 1,000 kids. We started this in the beginning of uh, the holiday season, and we're continuing on. Compassion International does an incredible job of taking care of kids in third world countries and making sure that they have education, that they have medical care, and that they hear the gospel. You can sponsor a child today, Compassion.com slash Rusty. And by doing that, for the price of just a couple of lattes, uh, you're going to change somebody's life. So thank you so much for those of you who have already done that. Well, here we go. My conversation with pastor and author, Dr. Leroy Lawson. Well, Dr. Lawson, Roy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, I'm just honored to have you here. Uh, As I told you, as I was uh, probably embarrassing myself with all my compliments towards you, you helped me write a lot of sermons uh, when I was in college, driving to my supply preaching points. uh, And I would listen to you on the radio. I'd think, boy, that's a whole lot better message than I had. And the people got a lot of Roy Lawson, whether they knew it or not. So uh, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much, Rusty. I'm delighted to be here, even though you did not. I want to know, did you ever give me credit for those sermons? Oh, heavens, no. No, no. no. It's called research, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I was afraid they'd tune in and stop coming to church. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to ask you for the benefit of our listeners, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into ministry and kind of what you're up to right now. Well, uh, I suppose I could just say I'm a, I'm a child of the church. Mm. I grew up in Tillamook, Oregon, in a wonderful town and a wonderful church, had a strong youth program. There were a lot of adults in that church who, who believed in us kids. Uh, they, they prayed for us. They encouraged us. They recognized our abilities and, and, uh, and, and tried, to, uh, tried to challenge us to use those, those abilities for the Lord. So I'm a child of the church. I'm also a child of a broken home. Hmm. And this goes with the first one. When our home was um, getting um, more and more uncomfortable, I found my home in the church. Um, ours was a Christian home. My, my parents were believers. They were nice people. They just increasingly didn't like each other. And uh, by the time I was in high school, it was apparent that it was over. Hmm. I guess I should say a third thing. I'm a child of a church plant, hmm. but uh, it was the, the church plant that I planted. And uh, I was extremely young. I was 21 years old when I was called to start a church in a suburb of Portland, Oregon. Hmm. And um, what did I know? I knew absolutely nothing. And those dear saints 
<laughs> well, I was supposed to stay two years and then go on to seminary and become a real preacher. And they were going to bring a real preacher in to, uh, <laughs> to clean up my mess. Well, I fooled them. I fell in love with the church and I wouldn't leave. So I stayed six years. And, wow. uh, and they simply uh, took Joy and me. Joy was not quite 19 when she became a pastor's wife. So here we were, these kids. And these, these saints of God came to church Sunday after Sunday and, and, and let me practice on them. Hmm. That church is still going. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of those people. And uh, so I guess I would say uh, I'm a child of the church. I'm the child of a broken home and a child of a church plant. That's how I got into ministry. Well, I should have known you would have had three points and, <laughs> and they would be alliterated. That's a typical pastor right there. That's so great. Were they adequately illustrated? Is the <laughs> well, there was no poem and prayer at the end, but <laughs> other than that, it was spot on. <laughs> so you planted this church and, and I love that because we have a lot of church planners that listen. And I love the, the admission that you didn't know what you were doing, but <gasps> you got it started. And and people kind of helped you along the way. Uh, what do you look back now and think, boy, I wish I would have known this. Was it more about leadership? Was it more about theology? Was it more about teaching? Oh, my. Um, all of the above. <laughs> Honestly, I can't, I can't exaggerate what I didn't know. I'd had two years. I was still in college when I started the church. And the two years before I did that, I was a youth minister in a church in Portland. Hmm fell um, under the influence of, of a wise minister. So I learned a lot from him, but, but then I was on my own. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, didn't, we don't do that these days, but in those days, we didn't put a team together and start a church. We, we, we found a really cheap college student and, and, <laughs> and sent him to the field and said, we'll be praying for you. And so, uh, you know, those, those were some lonely, lonely days. Right. I, I have thanked God ever since though that I got to do it that way because these saints I'm talking about were there, they knew what I didn't know and they knew I needed help and they stepped forward and it was a team effort from day one. Give me the idea or just the timeline. When was this occurring? Oh, you want to know how old I am. All right. July the 12th, 1959. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, let me tell That's you when you story. were born. <laughs> Thanks. <so much. laughs> I was lying a moment ago. No, that date is significant because Later on, I, I had a 20-year ministry at Central Christian Church in Mesa, Arizona, and that church was born one week later, July okay. 19th, 1959. And um, as you know, that church in Arizona became a mega church. But I always looked at, at that church kind of like this was my, my little church grown up. Right. It had the same feel, the same, same saintly people that I got to work with. So, Okay, I want to ask you about that because I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, but I'd heard of Central and what they were doing in in Arizona and the incredible church it was. What was the mindset shift you had to go through because you were pastoring a much smaller church up in Oregon? Now, years later, you're pastoring this twenty year old church. When you got there, it's large, but it's about to explode and get even bigger. What were some of the things you had to stop doing or start doing, or how did pastoring change for you? Oh, I'm probably going to surprise you. The church in between was a church in Indianapolis. Okay. When I went there, it was running, uh, and it was almost a six-year ministry, and it was running um, eight or 900 when I went there. When I left there, it was running eight or 900, and... Um, I have to say it was the hardest job I, I've ever had. It was in a changing neighborhood, hmm. but we were not quite facing up to the challenges of, of the change. Uh, it was a traditional Christian church. We had a church board of 75. Hmm. Oh, wow. 12 elders, 60 deacons, and three trustees, 75. They met every month. They second-guessed what I did every month. <laughs> Now these are good people. These are great people, but they were kind of they were kind of locked in to um, that traditional form of church polity. So, oh well, I should add another thing. I followed a, one of our most successful ministers, E. Ray Jones, and uh, he'd had a ten-year ministry, a very successful, very significant ministry. I went into that job also not knowing what I was doing because I went there from Milligan College, where I'd been a professor for for uh, eight years. So I decided going in. Um, my last church, 
was the one in Oregon, and it was about 120 when I left there after six years. I was going into a church that claimed a membership of 2,500 and an attendance of eight or 900. Uh-huh. Once again, what did I know? Right. So I decided I wouldn't do, I wouldn't make any changes until I'd been there a year and studied what Ray had done. And well, by the end of the year, it was probably too late because they saw that I was following them and they were not following me and worked out that way. Now I'm being, I'm being <laughs> But what I thought, here, here's, the, here's what I learned. I worked fiercely hard. I, I worked harder than I knew I could work. At one point, I did a time study on myself. I was working 100 hours a week. Mm. I put in my 40 hours by Wednesday noon, thinking, you know, I've got to, I've got to earn my salvation here. Right. I've got to earn my paycheck. So the big decision I made in going out to Arizona was I'm not going to work that hard anymore. Mm. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pastor, I'm going to preach, I'm going to leave the results to the Lord. And uh, I felt probably younger after 20 years in that church than I did when I left the church in Indianapolis. And the big change was in me. uh, Well, and and of course, the church in Indianapolis was in a neighborhood that was changing. The uh, church in Mesa was in a neighborhood that was changing, but in the other direction, it was booming. Mm. And in a sense, we, we rode the population boom. Mm. So when I went there, it was running about, well, about half the size of the church I left in Indianapolis. And, mm-hmm. and then 20 years later, we, we were averaging about 4,500 on a weekend. Mm. I didn't change that much. I was the same guy. I was preaching in the same way. But the demographics were different. Mm-hmm. And so I had help from the external population that I didn't have in Indianapolis. But I want to say this because I, I, I don't want to leave the wrong impression. That was a strong church in Indianapolis. It was a good church. The, the problem was not with them. The problem was that I was still running scared. Mm. How, how do you think you changed that mindset? I mean, part of it was you moved. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always found that when you move, you get a chance to reinvent yourself. But sometimes the demons, they catch up a little later. <laughs> and they come knocking on the door. How did you kind of, you know, that workaholism, that perfectionism, that making God happy, um, how did you fight that off in the, in the years that you had in Arizona? Well, I was and am in love with my wife, and um, she deserved a little attention. Mm. I was and am in love with my children. They deserve some attention. They deserved not to have a dad who was tired all the time. A wonderful story from those Indianapolis years. We had an open house for folks, and one of our Snoopy deacons asked my son, Lane, well, what does your dad do around the house? And Lane said, well, he sleeps a lot. <laughs> and I did, you know, <laughs> trying to catch up. So that was a, that was a big change. And, um, and I, decided, I decided it didn't all depend on me. I decided <laughs> that it might be a good idea for me to practice what I preach. That, in fact, the Lord is in this business. His spirit does fill us and, and guide us. And, uh, and I also decided that my job was going to be to encourage and, and maybe release the energy and abilities of the people I was there to serve. Mm-hmm. I came forward. Mm. Just simply wonderful, gifted people. And I just tried to do my best to unleash them and get out of the way. There's an interesting story um, about the logo of Central Christian Church. <laughs> yes. And it's really unique if you see it because it's a cross, but it's laying down. It's mm-hmm. on its side. Mm-hmm. And I understand from talking to your successor, Cal, that was a bit of a mix up that you ended up leveraging for something good. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yes, um, that, that building had in, in the front 25, as I recall, speakers for the organ. And they were up in front and they had to be hidden. So they were hidden behind a balcony. It was kind of a, a false balcony, but it held the speakers. And we did know that we wanted a cross as we faced the balcony on the right-hand side. So we lifted the cross. Well, the cross bars. Uh, 
was the crossbar was kind of hidden in the cantilever of the of the balcony. And we wanted them to see the cross, so we laid it on its side. Now, my wife is an interior designer, and she was involved in that decision. It looked really good. So she she laid it on its side, and then, in effect, said to me, now you explain it. <laughs> so I came up with a really good theological explanation for why that cross was on its side. Outside of the building, we had three crosses representing Golgotha. So to the world... There were the crosses, but those of us on the inside knew that the work had already been done on the cross. So inside the cross was down, but it was so positioned that it was ready for us to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Brilliant. Your wife set you up for that, didn't she? <laughs> that is so great. Okay. So while you're at Central, mm -hmm. Explain to me how you got connected with uh, Pacific Christian College, which is now Hope International University, and you decided to become their president. Um, so, so what led you to that decision? Well, I, I, uh, earlier in my career, when I left the church in Oregon, I really feel, felt that God was calling me from teaching to college, from preaching, I should say, to college teaching. So I was on the faculty at Milligan College for eight years. Mm-hmm. My last three, I was the vice president of the college back in the days when we only had one. Now, I don't know how many it has taken to replace me. But <laughs> 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 of course. So, um, so the people in, um, in the Southwest knew, some of the people in the Southwest knew of my academic background. And um, I should have said that I took, a, I took a couple years out of the middle of my teaching career at Milligan to go to Vanderbilt. And that's where I picked up my doctorate. So they knew all this. And um, Nofel Staten was the president at Pacific Christian College at the time, and he was having a, a real tough time with his health. In fact, I remember, I remember in a conversation encouraging him to resign. Uh, I said, we need you alive. I'm happy mm -hmm. to say, by the way, he's still alive and being very productive. Mm -hmm. But we didn't know it was going to be that way then. He was, he was really struggling with his health. So um, let's see, at that point, I'd been at at Central about 11 years when uh, the chairman of the board contacted me to see whether I'd be interested in becoming president. And I, I said, no, I said, uh, I said, I've got this church so far in debt. If I were to <laughs> now, <laughs> they couldn't respect me. You couldn't respect, I couldn't respect me. So uh, that was it. Until weeks later, um, I was contacted again. And this time, they said, okay, uh, don't leave the church, but come anyway. Well, that was tantalizing. Um, hmm. the, the think that it would be possible for me to do those two jobs at the same time, and it would mean using up my, my education. When I took that leave at Milligan to go to Vanderbilt to get my doctorate, that made sense. I was going to be a professor. When I left Milligan to become a, a preacher, not only was the PhD not required, it was kind of an impediment initially. You know, mm -hmm. who's this egghead coming in here? Um, and so for 17 years, I wondered why I had put my family through what I put them through to go off and get that, that doctorate. I went off salary, picked up every part-time job I could get in order to feed the, the, the family. So they said, don't leave, but come anyway. And all of a sudden, that began to make sense began to make sense. And so I prayed about it, talked to Joy about it. Now I'm kind of a cowardly guy. When we decided that maybe this could be done, I, I said, I, I, can't talk to, <laughs> I can't talk to this eldership because two years earlier, because of my wife's health, they had agreed to allow us to live in Payson, which was an hour and a half away from the church, up in the mountains for her health. Hmm. This was a, a great elderships. Now I'm to go back to those same guys and ask, well, uh, how would it be with you if, if, if I took another full-time job in another state? <laughs> I didn't have that kind of courage. So I invited some of the trustees of what was then Pacific Christian College to come over and talk to the eldership. And I introduced them and I said, they have something to say to you. And I got, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was wonderful. Because our elders, I didn't ask for a decision then, of course, but we would, we would pray about it, talk about it. And our elders decided that, 
yeah, that would be okay. That would be an extension of our mission as a church. Hmm. These, these guys had great vision, just great vision. And so it came to pass. Hmm. And so for the next nine years, uh, I was I was the uh, senior pastor of the church in Mesa, Arizona, and I was the president of Pacific Christian College, now Hope International University. And uh, I would have to tell you, Rusty, they were, professionally speaking, they were the best years of my life. Mm. I, felt, <laughs> I felt God was getting everything I had to give him. Uh, there, there was nothing left. And, and it was wonderful. And my wife, of course, was still uh, having her challenges with her health. So our home was still in Payson. Mm. So every week when I didn't travel somewhere else, I slept in three beds in two states with one woman. <laughs> that was my existence. I love that. We had the house in Payson, and we kept a, an apartment, a condo in Mesa. And then we had a little apartment on campus. Mm. That's great. Well, I, I just can't even wrap my mind around that schedule and how you keep up with all the, the things that you're doing. Walk us through just a week of your life in, in those, those days, that nine-year period of time, as far as you preach on Sunday, when do you write your messages? Uh, you mentioned prayer was a major focus. How did you put that into your day? I mean, was that just in the morning, staff meetings, work at the college? What a week look like for you? <laughs> I look back now and I wonder, uh, <laughs> but it seemed, it seemed, and it was really quite doable. The biggest surprise was when, when um, Pacific Christian College asked me to become president and the elder said, fine, I, I spoke to both bodies about cutting my salary in half, being half, half, uh, half of my mm -hmm. pay coming from each one, in effect, half time. And they both said, no, we're not going to cut your salary. Uh, you'll be considered full time. Mm. That didn't mean long work weeks because I wanted them to get their money's worth. Right. Now, fortunately, there was quite a bit of overlap. The constituencies nationally were the same. If I went, say, to the North American Convention, I went on behalf of the church and on behalf of the university. And I could walk through other things. If I worked with a, with a mission organization, it was the same and, and so on. So there's quite a bit of overlap. In a normal week, and I had very few of those, but in a normal week, my, my uh, sermonizing time was in Payson. I had a, a desk there, wonderful little office there. So I could sermonize and do a lot of my desk work there so that when I was on the campus of the church, that time was devoted to people. And when I was on campus at the university, that time was devoted to people. I, uh, I may have learned this way back in that early church that I was serving because I never served the church I planted full time. I was either going to college hmm. or I was teaching high school or I was going to college and teaching high school and, and leading the church. So I learned early on um, to a pretty firm discipline of time management and, uh, and, and could, uh, I could juggle more than one ball at a time. And so I applied that, but that can only be done with a couple of conditions. I certainly didn't take on the college until our children were raised. Mm -hmm. um, that was a pretty big job too. Right. Um, I couldn't take on that job without Joy's participation. And I mentioned her health issues. I learned later that she encouraged me to take that second job because she was fearful about her own health mm. and thought the day might come when I would need to resign and take care of her. It was a huge a huge decision, a gracious decision on her part. Mm. So uh, we, uh, I always felt that we were partners in this thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so she was understanding when I was home and I was sermonizing. And uh, so I did a lot of the paperwork there. Then one half of the week, uh, I would be in the office a day or two in Mesa, the other half in the office on campus at uh, the university. And, and it worked. It worked mm. very well. I, one other thing I got to tell you, it worked because in both places, I had a wonderful administrative team mm -hmm. that I could trust. And in fact, during those nine years, I was granted two sabbatical leaves. Mm. One earned at the church, another one earned at the university. 
On both of those occasions, I said to the administrators in both teams, and at that point, they knew my mind and I knew theirs. So I said, whatever problem comes up, you're authorized to solve it, to deal with it. You don't have to get a hold of me. This, of course, this was before, I was grateful. It was before cell phones. It was before Zoom calls, you know, before all of that. And uh, I was out of the country um, on both of those sabbaticals for quite some time. So I said, you're authorized. You make the decision. Now, if you can't agree, <laughs> then you call me and I'll make the decision. They never called. <laughs> Now, at some point during all this time, you start writing books. Oh, yeah, uh, I did. <laughs> I, I looked on Amazon. There's a lot of books that you've written and some commentaries. I never have understood what possesses a person to write a commentary because that's that's some tough sledding there. Uh, did you enjoy that or you just felt like you needed to do that? Or was that an overflow from your message prep? I don't like writing. I like having written. Mm. The, the finished product, uh, I appreciate. I got started, I guess, um, my professor in my doctoral studies encouraged me to seek publication for that. And, and in fact, he took some of the initiative. I wouldn't have done so. And, uh, and so in time, Vanderbilt Press, they got, a, they got a, an award from the American Council of Learned Societies, I think was the name of it, to pay for the book. That gave me some confidence that, mm -hmm. you know, that maybe I, I could write. And then Standard Publishing approached and asked me to write, uh, to co-write with my friend Ted Yamamori, a couple of books. And then they kept coming back. Would you write this one? Would you write that one? Uh, I was able to do that because most of my books are uh, collaborations with sermonizing. So yeah. maybe I preached the series and made a book out of it, or maybe I wrote the book and made a series of sermons out of it. But I doubled up almost. I, I've I've written thirty-one books. They're they're small books. And <laughs> most of them were were collaborations. Wow. Well, no matter how small, I, they're... Used, I used the wrong word. Not collaborations. It, it sounds like most of them I was writing with somebody else. I just mean the collaboration between sermonizing. And right. Writing. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you several different things, and I want you to pick your favorite thing that you did. Preaching writing a message, sermonizing, leading an elders meeting, leading a college, for instance, the staff at the college. What'd you enjoy the most? You didn't mention the one I enjoy most. What was that? Teaching. Really? Okay. I've always considered myself primarily a teacher. If you give me a, the choice between preaching to 3000 people and teaching, say, 30 students in a classroom. I want the classroom. Why is that? Because when I'm in the classroom, you can raise your hand and say, I don't understand that. Can mm -hmm. we talk about it? And so it's a dialogue. And, and I learn while they're learning. In preaching, it's pretty much a, a monologue. Now, I'm good at reading an audience and, and, and getting the feedback, but it's still not the same. Mm -hmm. And I... I don't sound like it now because I'm doing all this talking, but I really want to hear from you hmm. and not just from me. As a preacher, because you would preach so many weekends, how did you listen to the audience? Not just on stage, but even kind of work in the lobby. And, you know, every ah. preacher's got to have people that, that kind of weigh in. I read something that you wrote about a personal hero of mine, Fred Craddock. Uh, yes. uh, I, I met him once. I've listened to pretty much everything I can get my hands on, read everything that he wrote. He was brilliant, just brilliant. But he would talk about no matter how hard you lock the door, when you write a message, your congregation finds its way in. Yes. And I, I love that idea. How did you let them in? How did you hear from them as you prepared their message? You didn't mention the most important thing about Fred Craddock. What's that? Five foot four, I think. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, you two do share some resemblances. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's absolutely one of my all-time favorite preachers. I, right. I think I've read most of what he has written, learned a lot from him. One of the things I learned from him is his gift for storytelling. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and so I, 
I read, I read widely, still do, even though I'm not writing much anymore. But I read widely, which, which keeps me sensitive hmm. to the human spirit. And I put that together with, uh, particularly in my early days before the church got so large, I, I was a caller. I was in homes. Okay. I, I was on the job where the guys, guys and gals were working, tried to meet them where they were. And, um, and always, of course, on Sundays out in the foyer. I, I felt that maybe that, as particularly as the church got bigger, that was my best pastoring time. Mm-hmm. And, um, an interesting insight I gained, particularly at Central, that was a big room. That, that room would seat 2,000 on the main floor. Mm-hmm. And it must have had <laughs> half a dozen, maybe up to a dozen exits. They didn't have to go by the preacher to get out of the church. <laughs> but every Sunday after the sermon, there would be a lineup of people who wanted to talk to me. They'd already heard from me, so... They wanted me to hear from them. And I listened. One little observation I finally made, I realized that many of those, many of those were older women that, mm-hmm. I, that they were lined up there week after week to tell me not much, but I hugged them. And finally it dawned on me, I'm the only man who ever hugs them. Mm-hmm. And that said something to me about the nonverbal, non-spoken needs that people mm-hmm. feel in the church. And, um, and so if I was out in the foyer, if they would let me get out there, if I were out in the foyer, they didn't even have to see me. They just had to see me with people, mm. being one of them. And they felt, oh, okay, the captain is with the ship. And, uh, and then they felt free when they had a need to, right. let, to let me know about it. They, they, they knew when we got so big, they knew that I couldn't personally take care of everybody, but they trusted that I had people that I could mm-hmm. turn to who would be able to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so well said. How is preaching different today than it was when you were at Central? <laughs> when I was at Central, all the time up until uh, late in my time at Central, I was an expository preacher. Mm-hmm. I preached mostly through books. I remember the time my administrative assistant said to me, won't we ever get through Matthew? (laughs) And that summarizes the difference between then and now. Uh, I began to catch on that I couldn't hold people's attention that long for one study. Um, Now, my my preparation didn't change much. I was still an expository preacher, still am an expository preacher. But it felt more like topical to them, right? Because I would announce a series and um, and give it a name, but I was still exegeting the scriptures, and um, I guess I could say hiding behind the scriptures. You know, mm-hmm. particularly when I was young, I, and I knew so little. I, it really mattered that I hide behind the scriptures and let the scriptures speak and not mess them up. Right. There is such freedom in that. I find when I'm when I'm preaching, I feel great tension at the introduction, great tension at the conclusion. But once I get to the text, I feel like it's just smooth sailing because it does the heavy lifting. It does the lifting for you. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been at it over 60 years and it's, it's really amazing. I keep coming back to it and seeing things I never saw before. Hmm. Because of it, I come back with with old lenses now, different hmm. lenses. And so it speaks to me in a little different way. So I never tire of expository preaching. I was going to ask you about that because I think one of the tensions that all pastors feel is how do I make Christmas seem fresh again? (laughs) And Easter, it's the same story. People know the ending and it's wonderful, Mm -hmm. but I want to tell it in a way that captures an imagination in a way that was fresh for them. How did you keep coming to those similar texts over and over again and finding fresh, fresh life in them? Boy, that's a good question. And I do remember struggling with holidays. But um, if you're mingling with your people, your people are not the same. If you're out in the community, Mm. they're not the same. If you're reading widely, the books aren't the same. And you keep running into, I know that the themes are old, but the insights are new or the applications are new or the struggles that your people are having this Christmas may be quite different from, well, for example, and I wasn't preaching this Christmas, but good night. 
yeah. preaching about Christmas in COVID. Mm. There's something to be said there that I hadn't said before. Right. That's and, really good. Yeah. It, it, it keeps, I don't know. I think if we stay curious about life and we stay in love with our people, then we're going to find uh, the word of God pretty relevant, mm -hmm. challenging, wonderfully encouraging. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to rely then on our own ingenuity. I'm not a, I'm not a creative preacher. I, I, uh, I steal stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't make up stuff very well. <laughs> I've already admitted that I do because I stole it from you. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's called research in that case. It's called research. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I worked for, uh, for Wayne Smith for several oh, years and he used to always say, um, that, uh, you know, you heard about the guy that said I'll be original or nothing. And he was, so <laughs> I, <laughs> you've just quoted one of my all time favorites. <laughs> I miss them. Oh, he was so wonderful. I just, I, I cherished every moment I had with him and he always, he always lived up to all of the hype. He was great. Uh, okay. I want to ask you some, some questions about your family because okay. here you are busy schedule. You waited till, you know, the really busy schedule till after your kids were, were grown, but what were some of the things that you learned that growing a, a big church and being very busy, but there were some things that you had to manage at home and how did you develop that over the years with your children? Excuse me for one moment while I interrupt this conversation to remind you about a chance to sponsor kids in third world countries. If you have not already gone to compassion.com slash rusty, will you choose to do that today? Maybe over dinner tonight with your family, decide to sponsor a child and change their life forever. Compassion.com slash rusty. Thanks so much. Back to the episode. And how did you develop that over the years with your children? Oh, I think we had a wonderful home life. Now, I've got to confess to you, uh, if you ask our two daughters about our home life when they were growing up, you would conclude that they, that they were raised by different parents in a different house at a different time. <laughs> and uh, they don't have the same perspective at all, mm. which, is, which was good for me to learn about those people that I'm preaching to. They all bring their perspectives as well. But from my perspective, um, I'm, I already told you, I'm a product of a broken home. And um, I, just, I just cherished our home, our family life. Um, I, I married, you know, the smartest thing I did was marrying the woman that I married, who is still, after 61 years, the joy of my life, literally and mm -hmm. figuratively. Um, joy was a preacher's kid uh, and uh, brought up in a solid, her home was as solid as mine wasn't. Mm. So she brought strength to the marriage that I had to grow into. So uh, I leaned, I leaned very heavily on her uh, emotionally and and uh, for her wisdom as well. She had uh, she had a gift with the children. I, I have to confess, I wasn't the best father for little children. They scared me. I didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> I came into my own when they were teenagers. Okay. In fact, uh, I was asked by a standard uh, publishing company to write a series of articles. I guess it was in Lookout um, on parenting teenagers. I wrote, I think, six articles. And when I did that, I, I, I had the kids sit around the, the table and tell me what I should say. And mm. it, was, it was just a revealing and wonderful experience. But that kind of uh, indicates, I think, what enabled me to do what I did when the children were home, Joy um, helped me to understand and it helped them to understand that we're in this thing as a family. Mm. And so they were very much involved in the children's program and then in the youth program. And uh, our house was always full of, of, of their friends, which uh, just thrilled me. Um, I tried I tried, I didn't go out on in, the, in their teen years. I didn't go out on Saturday nights, but that was because I've never had a strong voice. I couldn't go out on Saturday night and then preach three times on Sunday morning. And then when we started our Saturday night service, <laughs> I, would, I would sneak into the service and sneak out of the service and go back home because the night air just did bad things for me. So 
I was around then. I dated the children. Uh, that that was that was kind of fun. When they were little, it was cheap. I could do it. <laughs> we went out to McDonald's. I got I don't like Big Macs at all, but we, we went out for Big Macs because that was their choice. And um, we did that. I did that when they were small, and then when they were teenagers. Um, not so often because they had their own lives, but because we had learned that we could talk to one another over Big Macs, we could still talk to one another when they were teenagers. And my job with them was to try to encourage them. Mm-hmm. Um, I started with Joy. I want to end with Joy. She just kept that kind of open, hospitable house, uh, and it was always full. Mm. And yet, when we didn't have uh, Velcro kids, uh, we call them unofficially adopted kids, uh, or the neighborhood kids, or the church kids in, it was a quiet home, peaceful home. Mm-hmm. And it was their refuge as much as mine. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your son, Lane. Um, yes. you, you had to walk through some of the darkest days of your life in the loss of, of him. Can you walk us through a little bit about that and, and how you persevered through that time and the things you learned from the Lord during the loss of him? Yes, I'm just finishing a manuscript. I'm writing a book. My, my next book is going to be about him. When uh, our son committed suicide, he was just short of 27. Mm. He had battled um, depression off and on for most of his life. Uh, one of the doctors labeled the problem. Um, uh, oh, I just dropped the name of it. It'll come to me when I, when I go on with the story. But it was, it was a physiological rather than a psychological issue. He, um, and, and this was part of the issue that my wife was wrestling with as well, severe allergies to uh, neurochemicals, or to chemicals, I should say, which affected him. That, that's the word I was after, ne- neurochemical depression. Um, he was allergic to all kinds of things, including uh, the air that he breathes, petrochemicals. Well, that's... that's uh, automotive exhaust, et cetera, among other things. But even the clothes that we wear, the, the, the fabrics that we sit on, petrochemicals are found everywhere. Mm. We did not know that that was the issue uh, for a long time, but he would go into periods of depression. He left, uh, he left Arizona and moved, as an adult, moved up to Oregon in search of purer air. Uh, his grandfather had a cabin on the coast in Oregon. He thought if he could get there, and uh, breathe in that better air, he would be well. He was there, but he wasn't getting well. And he he felt his body um, getting worse and worse. And finally, um, finally he just gave in and uh, drove his pickup truck into the woods and attached a hose and took his life. He left us a letter, a a long, uh, not just a suicide note, but a long, wonderful letter explaining himself, absolving the family, um, trying to ease the pain for us as much as he could. Mm. (laughs) There's no easing that kind of pain. Mm -hmm. Um, But my therapy was, Joy had a wonderful support group that helped her. My therapy was to write. And so I answered his letter. It's about a hundred page manuscript. I'm in dialogue with my dead son. He speaks while I speak back. And, um, and, and we, it was very helpful. I did that the year after he died. He died in 1994. I had a sabbatical coming up in 1995. And I, uh, my thought was, if I can just get to my sabbatical, mm. maybe when I get back, I'll be sane again. And, and it did work. And while I was away, I answered him and uh, thought about publishing it, even took some tentative steps toward publishing it and, and then backed away. That was 1994. I'm just now finishing that manuscript mm-hmm. in 2021 because every time I go back to it, the tears took over yeah. and I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't force myself through it. This time I forced myself through it, but the tears still come. One of the lessons learned, and I knew this already intellectually, but I had to experience it. These things, you never heal from these things. You you initially scab over, and then you maybe scar over, 
but the scars are there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so every time you revisit it emotionally, mentally, uh, it all comes back. So that's the background. How did I get through it? Um, poorly. One of the hardest things I ever have had to do is go back into the pulpit the first time and face that congregation. Um, I felt that they were probably sitting back looking at me and wondering, okay, now he's always talking to us about the faith. Did it work for him? Mm. Well, it did actually, it did. And, um, and then of course they were not just looking at me critically. They were looking at me compassionately Mm. walking with me. One of the things I learned when they heard our story, it gave them permission to tell me their story. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how many of my people had com- considered suicide, mm-hmm. how many of them had had suicide in the family or had been battling uh, depression, deep depression for a long time. Um, I think it's fair to say I can't preach the way I used to um, because uh, I, I, <laughs> I feel people's hurt something awful. And, um, and I know that what I didn't need in my deepest hurt, I didn't need anybody giving me answers. Yeah. There, there aren't any. I didn't need anybody quoting scriptures. I already knew them. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't need the cliches. Oh, well, God must have wanted him more than you do. Oh. I mean, just, you, you know, all those things. Um, mm-hmm. I'm talking a mile a minute with you right now, but there are greater silences in my life than there used to be. And, uh, and I think more compassion. I could summarize by saying, I'd give anything I have to have my son back, but I don't want to be who I was before I lost him. Wow. Aeschylus, the Greek playwright said, wisdom comes through suffering. I really believe that. I believe wow. one, of the, one of the weaknesses of American theology and American preaching is we don't, we don't leave room for suffering. We, it's un-American. We're, we're fixers. We're can-do people. We solve things. Well, some of the world's biggest issues can't be solved that easily, and certainly some of a person's deepest hurts cannot be solved that easily. But what we need, uh, not, not only the love of God, but we need the love of people. Mm-hmm. And if I've been uh, strengthened in any resolve through uh, losing our son, I've been, I've been strengthened in my belief in the church. Mm. Um, and not necessarily the prophetic church. I've, I've kind of had it up to here with us Christians yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that solves nothing. In fact, it, it, it divides us from each other. Mm-hmm. But what... I'm persuaded of with all my being is what the, what the world needs now is a loving church, Mm -hmm. a a place that functions as exhibit a of the love of God. It can work folks. Look here, here you'll find people actually loving each other, disagreeing with each other, having to be tolerant of one another, all that stuff we read about in the new Testament, but ah, behold these Christians, how they love one another. Mm. I'm, I'm deeply committed to that now and, um, and growing more impatient with our impatience with one another. You've said so many great things that would be of comfort and help for uh, parents out there who have lost a child to suicide. And the numbers are staggering mm. uh, how much of an epidemic it is right now. Is there anything else you'd like to say to them perhaps about their faith? Yeah, but let me start not with faith. Uh, let me start with a card we received. We just received so many thoughtful, wonderful cards. But one that stuck out to Joy and me, a young woman in our church in Mesa, you know, one of these beautiful Hallmark cards. I can't tell you anything about it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it said. I don't know what it looked like. But I can tell you that at the bottom, she wrote simply, it's not fair. I can hardly talk about it yet because it isn't fair. It wasn't fair. Wow. And life isn't fair. And so I would say to parents uh, who are walking where we have walked or have their own 
tough um, journey. Don't don't beat yourself up demanding from life what life can't give you. Life does not promise fairness. Talk to the folks in Haiti right now. Hmm. Talk to the people over in Afghanistan. Talk to our Christian friends in India. Life's not fair. So let's accept that life's not fair and that um, when we chose to bear children, we, we chose to bear the burden of children, the burden when they're with us and the burden when they're not with us anymore. But the burden doesn't destroy the love. It's the mm. one thing, uh, even after faith and hope are gone, that remains. We love our son. We love our son. We talk about him all the time. He's as much present uh, in many ways as he was before. So we're not going to give him up. Um, but life does go on. I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking of a woman, I dear, dear friend, I called on who lost her husband. They were both dear friends of ours. And when I had a moment alone with her, she said, I didn't know it would hurt so much. And then she said, well... It is what it is. Now that's a cliche, of course, but it's not a cliche. It is what it is. And by faith, I will face what it is. And by faith, I will receive from the spirit of the living God, the strength to face it. One more little story. I was helped by Betty Gray. Betty Gray is a delightful Christian woman, now 90 years old. I went to a workshop that she led a couple of years ago at Johnson University. She was talking about uh, the 23rd Psalm. I just, I will never forget this. Who hasn't talked about the 23rd Psalm all of our lives? But I'm sitting there and she's reading this and then she gets up. Uh, she, she's an old lady. And she takes a stride across the front of the room. And she said, yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I'd never hit this this hard. She said, I do walk through it. Mm. Wonderful insight. Mm. She'd known about loss, but she has walked through it. And God doesn't give us anything. We can't walk through mm. if we place that it is what it is. And God is who God is. That's so good. Thank you for being willing to share that. Thank you. All right. I want to ask you uh, one more serious question. If you had to do one last sermon, you knew it was the last thing you'd say, the last thing to be recorded from you. What text would you preach? Hmm. It's pretty hard to improve on John 3.16. <laughs> it might be what, the one I've already alluded to. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Or it might not be <clears throat> a, a particular scripture. Excuse me just a moment. I, um, I preached a sermon a number of years ago that <clears throat> I might even make my last sermon. <clears throat> Do you have, I don't know what our time is. Do you have time for another little story? Absolutely. All right. Well, <clears throat> I preached this sermon, I think, for, for Rick Rousseau and then maybe for Bob Russell, the word kind of got out about this sermon. <clears throat> and here's the background of it. I already told you that in 1994, uh, our son died. Didn't mention to you, we have a big Velcro family. <clears throat> These are unofficially adopted people that have been in our family a long time. In fact, our oldest adopted son, 
is 75 years old. <laughs> he, he came into our family in my, that first little ministry I had in Oregon. And um, five years before our son died, his son died. He was killed uh, riding a motorcycle a month before I was to have flown to Oregon to marry him and his fiancee. That's the background. The year after Lane died, we had the first of our annual, still going on, all family vacations. And where we come together from wherever we happen to live now, and our, our biggest number was 70 of us. This year, close to 40, I think, or 50. Anyway, the first one was a Cultus Lake in Oregon. We, most of us gathered at Jeff's house. He's the oldest. <laughs> he had all the toys. <clears throat> and... Um, we caravaned from Canby, a suburb of Portland, to a, a lake in central Oregon. And we looked pretty good because we had his truck and his trailer. And in his trailer, we had a, a Jeep and a jet ski and a few other things. And then we had his motor home and his motor home pulled a, pulled a boat. He had all the toys for us. And we used it. We arrived at the camp and... Um, it was, it was later afternoon, so we didn't get everything set up. The next morning, uh, we, well, th three of us had to go into the nearest town to call our offices. While we were there, Jeff got a little impatient. He decided that he would unload the jet ski from that trailer, back the jet ski down, um, and uh, prepared to launch it. Now, with us, for the first time ever was our son-in-law, David. He and Candy had been married one month. They came up from California. Those of us who went to make our phone calls hadn't even seen him. But he was there when Jeff launched the jet ski. And he asked, I as the newcomer, well, can I help? And Jeff told him that he could drive the Jeep that was attached to the trailer on which the jet ski was. He could drive it up and park it. Fine, David said. So he got into the Jeep. Now, what I'm about to tell you was not really David's fault because he was young. He was, I think, maybe 30. And um, he got into the Jeep, put it in gear, released the clutch, and started going backwards <laughs> into the lake. And he hit the brake. He's quick. And he thought to himself, hmm, this ramp must be steeper than I thought. And so he... Uh, hit the accelerator a little harder, released the clutch again, and it headed back into the lake even faster. And on the shore was Jeff's daughter who knew that at the end of that ramp down under the water, it dropped off precipitously. And she yelled at him, get out of the Jeep. Well, he was able to get out of the Jeep before the Jeep drowned. So he's sitting on the, the ramp. Jeff comes back for, with a trial run and he can't find, he looked up the parking lot. He doesn't see, he, he doesn't see his Jeep or the trailer. What he does see is on the ramp, there's a man sitting there in kind of a vertical fetal position, rocking. <laughs> Jeff gets up, looks down through the water, spots his Jeep, gets off the jet ski, walks up to David. And the first words that David says is, I owe you a Jeep. <laughs> now, I did mention to you, didn't I, that he'd been in the family one month. Right. <laughs> what an introduction, particularly to our family. Well, the rest of us arrived, and when we arrived back at camp, there was the first one we saw was Jeff, and he looked pretty glum. He walked us to the ramp. He told us the story. And <clears throat> at that point, Jeff had already gone back up, got the truck, drove the truck down. He had a, he had a winch. And, and a cable on that Jeep down underwater, attached it to the, to the uh, truck, pulled the Jeep out of the water, and it was sitting there on the ramp beside David, kind of disgorging itself of excess liquidity. <laughs> and David is still hardly able to face us. <clears throat> I knew what he felt. I've done a couple of dumb things in my day. And I started to say something to him and I couldn't talk. When I get really emotional, I shut down. Brian, another Velcro son was beside me. 
And he, uh, he knew my problem. So he took over and he said to David, David, when you consider what these two men have lost, what's a Jeep? I think I would like to have that story in my last sermon. Because most of the people that I know who get themselves into the, the deepest trouble and can't get themselves out, they get into that trouble because they don't know the value of a Jeep in relation to the value of a loved one or a human being. I could preach that sermon with John 3.16 or 1 Corinthians 13 or many other scriptures. Or many others. I think it's at the heart of the gospel. Nothing compares with the value of a human being. Hmm. That's brilliant. Well, this has been <laughs> so rich. Thank you for your time. Um, Thank you. I, I, I do want to leave on a, on a high note. Uh, I texted with your successor, Cal Jernigan. This could of, be bad. <laughs> one of our, our favorite people in the world. He said to ask you about the time that you misused the word phylacteries. Oh, no, we're not going to end. <laughs> we're not going to, Rusty, we're not going to end this conversation on that one. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, it was an honest mistake. Oh, what did you, you say? You said prophylactic? Oh, I did. <laughs> I was preaching in Hebrews, and it was the first service. And I did not hear myself. I was looking at the word phylactery. And it's the same root, okay? Mm-hmm. I was looking at the word phylactery, and it came out prophylactic. <laughs> and I did not hear it. You didn't I, hear it. <laughs> down in the front row were two of, uh, of the associate ministers, and, and one turned and looked at the other one quickly, and the other one didn't move his head at all. He said, yes, he said prophylactic. <laughs> <laughs> the reverberations, uh, you know, I've... It's a terrible thing to make your uh, living with your mouth. And it really is. <laughs> I have too many stories like that, but oh. that oh, I was innocent and oh my I, I wouldn't want so to what some of the others said about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, off the air, I'll tell you something that Wayne Smith had. Uh, so, <laughs> oh. uh, and if somebody put a goldfish in your glass of water oh, on, well, on the pulpit. People are not nice to ministers. <laughs> that was <laughs> goodness, Cal talks too much. That was my fifth anniversary. I don't think Cal was even on the staff yet, but the story was still being told when he arrived. And the there was a man in our church who had built me my very own fit-to-size pulpit out of plexiglass, see-through. Oh, okay. Transparent. And it had a shelf there for my water glass. Because as you could tell, even in this, this uh, conversation, I have trouble with my voice. And so uh, it Frequently, probably regularly, I have to drink my way through a sermon. So that morning I was in good shape. I got through the entire first hour for in my sermon, and I took a drink of water from my water glass and I put it back, and that was it. Nobody said anything. Second service, I was still in good shape. I got through the sermon, took a swig of water at the end of it, put it down, and at this point, one of the elders couldn't stand it. And he walks up to me and he said, and I was sitting on the little bench uh, on the platform at this point, and he said, do you know you have goldfish in your drinking water? And I, I looked, and no kidding. Oh. Even from where I was sitting, I could see three. I walked over. I held it up. There were three goldfish. And there was a wagon in the front row. He said, there were four. <laughs> but it wasn't the goldfish that got me. It was the little white stuff. Oh, of course. <laughs> And I thought, thought, Lawson, you cannot be sick in front of all these people. That's the goldfish story. And it also went on and on. That's not a way to treat a minister on his fifth anniversary as the pastor. (laughs) That sounds like a loving church and staff to me. That's that's how we love. (laughs) Absolutely the best. Oh, Roy, thank you so, so much. What, What a joy this has been. I so appreciate your ministry and your sharing some of these insights with us. Um, God bless you, my friend. Thank you. you. It's been my privilege. Thank you, Rusty. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening. Boy, that was such great stuff. I really enjoyed talking with Leroy. What a great, great individual. And please share that with somebody that might encourage them. Uh, As mentioned earlier, if you would rate and review the podcast, that would be so, so helpful. Share this with a friend. Next week, for all of you who speak uh, to any group of people, whether it's five people, whether it's a Arbonne meeting, or whether it's a message to thousands, we got a guy coming in to talk to us that's going to help make preparing a message for any room simple. So next week, we talk with pastor, author, Steve Carter. Can't wait for you to hear what he has to say. Until then, make sure you keep it simple. We'll talk to you next week. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.